Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 162. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and I am delighted to have a pair of guests in this episode. My guests are Dr. Amy Goldberg, who is a professor of surgery and a trauma surgeon at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, and Scott Charles, who is the trauma outreach coordinator at Temple University Hospital. The two of them together, Scott and Amy, have collaborated in an incredible way, in a noteworthy way, and in an important way, creating a hospital-based gun violence intervention and prevention program called Cradle to Grave. And in addition to this, creating a wraparound bundle of safety net programs around gun violence from both a prevention perspective as well as a care perspective at Temple University Hospital. Their collaboration is absolutely fascinating. It's also incredibly effective. And I have to be honest, being able to bring this episode out today of all days is really meaningful. We talk a lot about barriers to discussing gun violence and educating around gun violence. And it was just announced that for the first time in over 20 years, bipartisan leaders in both chambers of Congress have announced a federal spending bill that will provide $25 million of research money around gun violence prevention to the CDC and the National Institutes of Health. This is a very big deal. It's very exciting. It's great to have this episode come out around that same period of time because this is the sort of work that's going to help drive change. Amy and Scott are brilliant. They are both doing such incredible work. They collaborate so well. They're hilarious. But more importantly, they have a real vision and they will drive and they work really hard to see that vision deliver on what it is supposed to. And it's really inspiring to learn from them and to hear from them as well. I was absolutely blown away having the opportunity to speak with them. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing what they have to say and also learning about the programs that they're building and getting a sense of the vision that they have for how to make the wheels begin to turn around preventing gun violence in the United States. Before we get to the conversation, as I always do, I want to just remind everyone, please take a look at the website for Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. And when you go to the archive, you will see we have categorized everything. And this episode will be nested in the archive in the usual manner, but also under the gun violence tag that's there. So you can click on that and you can see all of the content we've done around gun violence in the United States. You can email me anytime, Mark at Explore the Space Show, and you can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And whichever platform you do choose to listen to the show on, please take the opportunity to subscribe. And if you have a chance, a couple of seconds to leave us a rating and a review, that is really appreciated. And I know you hear it from me with every episode, but if you have the opportunity to leave a rating and a review, it really helps the show out and is much appreciated. Amy and Scott are also much appreciated. They took time out of their day. They came together. They were shoulder to shoulder when we talked and it shows they're just They just play off each other brilliantly. And that's how you get creations like Cradle to Grave and the Temple University Hospital Safety Net Programs. This is an absolutely wonderful, timely, and important conversation. So without further ado, Amy Goldberg and Scott Charles. Amy and Scott, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. This is a really wonderful opportunity. One of the things that I love to tease out 
on episodes of Explore the Space is the idea of taking a specific topic or a specific theme and finding the great collaborations that drive the work. And the issue of gun violence in the United States is obviously one of the most challenging, most provocative, and most important social issues that we deal with. So finding a powerful collaboration and learning how collaboration drives the work was something that was really important to me. So being able to connect with the two of you from that perspective, this is incredibly valuable. Thank you, Mark. Sounds great. Amy, let me start with you. And I'm curious because you have been working as a trauma surgeon for some time. And it's been not giving the years. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's been a, but it's been trauma has been a cornerstone of your career and your professional work. And so take me through the process by which you say, I'm seeing trauma related to gun violence every day. And I'm working in a major metropolitan center. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing all of the work that I was trained to do. I'm training others to do the work to try to save lives and control bleeding and control airways and counsel families and do all of this stuff. It's not enough. I need partnership. I want to do something different. What is the mindset and and take us through that part of the journey for you, where you said collaboration, partnership, and something different from just plugging holes is going to be really important. So I think pretty much early on, even as a surgical resident, as a surgery fellow, And as a young trauma attending, I knew immediately that I would want to do something more than just do the operation, that our patients needed so much more than what we did in the trauma bays or what we did in the operating room. So it really wasn't until 2004 when I became the chief of trauma here at Temple University Hospital Um, that I was really able to act on that incredible desire to find somebody to help us develop, you know, hospital-based prevention programs and hospital-based violence intervention programs. What was the culture like for you during your training and then as an attending around this idea of conversations and interventions around gun violence are going to be really important both inside and outside the hospital. And the reason that I ask you that is you use that you, you said this started sort of around 2004 was a key point for you. So I was in medical school from 1999 to 2003 in Houston, Texas. We saw lots and lots of gun violence. We saw lots and lots of people who'd been shot, injured, killed. There was very little, if any, to my recollection, and I didn't do my residency in surgery, full disclosure, but when I was a medical student, I did lots of surgical work and I was in the ED a ton at Ben Taub. The idea of what you just described never really surfaced. It was get the work done, get the work done, get the work done. Conversations around guns, gun safety, interventions to stem the tide of gun violence. It wasn't really on the menu. So what was the culture like for you? Were you, did you sort of stand out as someone who was looking to do something entirely different or were you fitting in with what the culture looked like at the time? I guess I was, even though I didn't see it that way was standing out and wanting to do something different. I mean, it just didn't seem right. You know, I started my residency in 1987 to 92 at Temple and then shock trauma for my fellowship in 92 to 93. 
And then as a trauma surgeon from 93 to 2004 until I was the chief. And and we did such great work. We provided such great medical care, but it was just so obvious during that whole time that we needed to try to do something more. And, um, you know, when I was particularly fiery, I would say that it felt like almost malpractice that we were just providing the medical care, but not doing that next step to really help our patients while they were here in the hospital or help our patients when they get discharged or, you know, the ultimate prevent our patients from becoming patients. It was just something that sat with me and gnawed at me until I was in the position to really be able to do something as the chief of trauma. I like the idea of a fiery surgeon taking this on. You have to give us one anecdote of a time that you felt like you really had to speak up. You had to feel that fire had to come out. Well, I think really it was advocating for Scott. Okay. You know, um, I, at that time, had really spoken many, many times to our CEO and told him how important it was that we hire a full-time trauma outreach coordinator and not just a full-time trauma outreach coordinator, but this particular person. And I was dogged and relentless and wasn't going to say no. So Scott, it sounds like in coming aboard this program, you were a natural fit around this time in the early 2000s. Where were you with your career and where were you with your mindset that brought you into this space and allowed this collaboration to, for, for you and Amy to connect and then this collaboration to start to take off? Well, it's, it's interesting because I don't think that um, I ever saw it as a natural fit. And I think Amy has spent the last 15 years trying to convince me that we're still a match made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not because we're not a match made in heaven. I think it's just simply, um, I don't know. I think I come from a very different world. And, and I was at the time I met Amy, I was working with at-risk kids uh, in North Philly uh, on an educational project. And it's really what brought me into the sphere um, you know, we were doing a service learning program, a service learning project on gun violence. And at the time in Philadelphia, um, there were a lot of kids being killed um, as a result of gunfire. And, you know, this program we were working on was exploring the real lived experiences of these gunshot victims. And so somebody put me in touch with uh, Amy and we spoke over the phone and immediately I was kind of <laughs> caught off guard by her energy um, because she's a very intense person. And uh, and we had this amazing experience with these kids where they were having these exchanges with Amy and other medical professionals here. Um, and I think a light went off for her where she thought, yeah, this is exactly what we've been wanting to do. I want to have conversations that don't involve me talking to a kid who's been shot. I want to I want to have that conversation before the kid's been shot. Um, and from that point began this very intense relationship where Amy would tell me where I needed to be. And and we have very different styles. Um, I remember she would call me and we've talked about this on a number of times. She uh, she would call me late at night when she'd had a really rough case with. Uh, particularly with young people who had been shot and I was at, I'd be at home in bed and the phone would ring and I'd jump up and answer the phone. And here's this voice on the other end imploring me to come, you know, take this job or consider this job. And in fact, 
you know, one of the things that she she said is, if I get this this create this job, um, I'm going to want you to I'm going to want you to take it. And at the time, I had I was kind of transitioning away from that other job, and I had this other opportunity. She she at the time promised that if I just held off and didn't take that job and kind of held out to go through this red tape, uh, she would write me a check that was for the the it was the equivalent of one year of that salary of the job that I was potentially passing up so that if she didn't deliver on creating a job here, that was my check to cash. So that was my, that was my security. And, and it was that kind of insanity um, and that commitment and that intensity um, that really brought me here because you didn't know it would bounce. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's framed on the wall. Now <laughs> I love the idea though, of two people with, a clear vision, perhaps not exactly the same process by which to execute on it, coming together to collaborate. I, I would submit, and I'm curious to your, get your thoughts, Amy, I'll ask you, if you both had been of a similar mindset and of a similar approach, would this have worked so well? Or do you need to push and prod and provoke one another to really kind of keep keep this project, keep this collaboration going? I think there's no doubt that we both wanted to do the same thing, which yeah. was really reach out to our community and prevent patients and people, you know, from coming to our hospital. But we're about as nif as different as night and day. You know, we come from different backgrounds. We're our personalities are very different, but we have I, I kind of have described it. You know, we have the same heart and the same passion for what we want to accomplish. But I, but I think, Mark, the, the thing that is important, that one of the things that Amy and I established really early on is a mutual respect for one another and a level of trust. And I think it was, you know, we, we, we continue to develop that as, as we, the years have marched on. But I think that it was incredibly helpful early on, the fact that I had somebody with whom I was collaborating that trusted me. And, and you know, we had mutual respect. And so, I wouldn't want you to think that we agreed on everything there. We've had a number of, of di disagreements about approaches, but again, it comes back to, to the trust and the fact that, you know, she's often willing to defer to my crazy ideas and I'm willing to defer to her crazy ideas because as she said, we have the same heart and, and we really want the same object objectives. And the thing that I think makes us such a powerful collaboration is the fact that we do bring different perspectives um, and we cover a lot of ground as a result of having those those different perspectives and those very different lived experiences. It's really nice to hear that because then we come to this signature program that you two have built, the, the Cradle to Grave program at Temple University. It's, as the website says, and I've, I've looked at this website so many times over the last couple of years as I've been learning about more and more about gun violence and doing more and more co content on Explore the Space Around It, one of the few hospital-based violence prevention programs of its kind in the country. But given that you both have, you have the same objectives, but different approaches to get there, I'm going to put you both on the spot a little bit. Amy, you get to go first. Amy, what will be your synopsis of Cradle to Grave? Cradle to Grave is an education program. Our goal is to educate anybody that comes through the program, whether they are students, whether they are uh, people that uh, might be in a probation program of some sort. It's all about education. We want to educate you 
about the realities of gun violence because we feel that what's what's being educated is coming from TV shows and movies and video games and not the reality that we see every day. So we, I see it as an education program. And Scott, let's pivot. I'll ask you the exact same question. Hmm. I, you know, I, I agree um, completely that it is a, an education program for me. It's really rooted in, in kind of public health in the way that we, you know, educate about everything from heart disease to colon cancer. And we talk about the, the realities when we talk about those issues. We get a little more squeamish when we talk about violence. And so I think a little creates, more squeamish. Yeah, a lot I, more think, squeamish. I think you're understating it. I think people yeah, don't want to talk about it at all. It's a, it's a lot more squeamish. And, it, and it's interesting because, um, you know, not to digress too much, but as an anecdote, you know, one of the evenings I was doing a program for a group of kids who had been court mandated to, to come to the program. And the reason that many of them are court mandated is because they have first time gun offenses. So you're talking about teenagers who are kind of running around Philadelphia with with firearms. And so the judges will say, you know, go to cradle to grave. And so I just finished doing this program. And as I was leaving the classroom that we were doing the program, I walked by the next classroom and I peeked in and I see one of our social workers who, instead of having kind of young uh, men from the city, he had older men from the community in his classroom. And I later stopped him and asked him what that was about. And he was, he was educating them about colon cancer. And it was interesting because he had pictures of kind of a diseased colon and he was showing a, a medical procedure. And I thought, my God, this is exactly the same kind of program that we do. It's just for the thing that is is one of the major issues for older uh, men of color. And here I am working on this issue that is a major issue for young men of color. But nobody would criticize his program as being a scared straight program, which is one of the criticisms that we we get. Um, they simply recognize that what we're trying to do is provide um, information and knowledge about this this disease, which is exactly what I'm trying to do when it comes to gun violence. But we we were, as Amy pointed out, we're a society that's willing to depict violence in a way that is so glamorous. And when you think about, um, you know, what we've done with it, and this isn't to criticize media generally, but just to say, let's be honest, the fact is that we see far more gun violence depicted in movies today than we've ever seen. And a lot of times that 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 violence has a soundtrack. Um, it's being committed by very good looking people. And there really is no depiction of the aftermath of gun violence, at least not in real terms. And so that was the the objective of, of Cradle to Grave, as far as I was concerned, is to tell the, the truth. And, and the fact is that we really characterize gun violence as being about life and death, when the reality is the vast majority of people who get shot survive their injuries. And so really gun violence isn't about life and death as much as it is about suffering. And you never really see those that that aftermath or that suffering or that, you know, the recovery depicted in movies. And I think it's incredibly unfair um, to those kids who are putting themselves and others in harm's way to not allow them to make informed decisions. And that's what Cradle to Grave is. It's really about helping kids make informed decisions as far as I'm concerned. The thing, the thing about Cradle to Grave that I find both provocative and effective, and it connects, I think, with what both of you said, 
is this idea of using realistic imagery and providing a realistic story. And so as you're moving the people who are participating in the program through the program, they're going to see graphic images of what a gunshot looks like and what wounds look like and what the wound healing process looks like. And here that graphic depiction of what the suffering looks like in the moment and then longitudinally because the recovery from something like this can be so prolonged and so complicated. But in doing so, you have, and I'm going to bet you both did this intentionally, put yourself square in the middle of a real tension around, is it okay to show the graphic depictions of gun violence? And when people have tried to do that, most recently with students saying that if I'm a victim of gun violence, I want you to show the images of my dead body so that people can see what gun violence looks like. That program about six months ago met with tremendous criticism. When Mm -hmm. you're doing that, do you face criticism or do you, is it met with enthusiasm is not the right word, but recognition that that is the right approach? Well, I think the participants of the program do think it's the right approach. I think the non-participants of the program and people that hear about the program question what we do and, and can be pretty vocal about it. And again, I mean, we, we see the program as, an educational program. And it's so interesting. I don't know if you've seen the new commercials now for vaping, <laughs> you know, how vaping can lead to cigarette smoking. And those are pretty graphic. You know, the commercials are pretty, pretty graphic. And yeah. even, even the, you know, the public service announcement of the patient that has the trach, you know, the tracheostomy in the female patient, the wig, I mean, this is a public service announcement on cigarette smoking that's on TV. People have embraced that when we are trying to provide that same public service and that same education. And it it is received with uh, some significant controversy. Scott, would you be able to submit your thoughts on where and who and why that pushback comes and cause I can only imagine what you are subjected to. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that a lot of the criticism comes from folks who aren't in these communities. You know, I, I, I not only was raised in a community that was exposed to a tremendous amount of gun violence, but I continue to live in a community that sees its fair share of gun violence. And the folks who are coming to the program are those who've been working with these kids and that this is their career. The criticism usually comes from folks who don't have any real proximity to this this issue. You know, the the problem for as far as I'm concerned is that the idea that we wait until kids have to suffer this this kind of harm firsthand for them to learn the lessons of gun violence um, is just incredibly irresponsible. And it really says something about the way that we view this community, this idea that we know what's best for this community when this com- this community has decided that this is what they want. They want their sons and their, their daughters um, to kind of learn these lessons, uh, you know, secondhand in a classroom, in a quiet setting uh, where responsible adults are kind of walking them through this experience because they don't want their children's their children to suffer this firsthand or not only suffer this gun violence but to perpetrate it. You know, one of the one of the things that we lose sight of is that this is Pennsylvania where you know, we have more juvenile lifers 
in Pennsylvania, or we've had more juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania than any other place on the planet, not just in the country, but on the planet. Um, We prosecute teenagers and we send them away for life without the possibility of parole. Um, And that's, you know, obviously changed with the Supreme Court decision. But, you know, when I think about the number of men who went away as teenagers who turned 30 years old in prison and having spent almost as much time in prison as they had spent out of prison. And when they come to terms with, with what they've done to somebody else and they realize that there's no fixing it. There's, there's no fix here. They're going to die in prison. They've taken another life. They, they can't atone for that. And the kind of trauma that inflicts on those perpetrators who themselves were once teenagers. Um, I just think it's, it's incredibly cynical and, um, and, and frustrating. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting about that, the thing that occurred last year with regard to the NRA and the stay in your lane moment was how some of the very people who had been critical of us showing, you know, not just gun injuries, but how physicians treat those injuries. Those physicians were now suddenly posting images of the work that they do. And so I thought it was interesting, and I've had conversations with some of those physicians, and, and not in a you know confrontational way, but just in an honest conversation. And I just said, you know, so why is it suddenly okay for you to post pictures of of you know gunshot injuries um, and really graphic <laughs> images? And you know, they said, well, you know, this is you know, it's, it's Twitter and I'm, I'm attacking the NRA. And I said, well, you know, the difference is when it comes to cradle to grave, we have an entire process where the group that are, that's coming is expected to have a social worker connected to them or a school counselor connected to them. Um, so that we're not just traumatizing kids and then sending them back to the school with no supports. There is a consent form that it has to be signed by the parents. But when it comes to Twitter and you're posting these images on social media, there's no guarantee that you, that kids aren't seeing these images. So I thought it was it was interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, I think we recognize that it's important for the world to see what's really going on behind behind these closed doors. I like that you use the term frustration and Amy, I want to reflect a frustration that I have to you and see what your thoughts are around it. And it comes off of the website and it's on the about page where it says cradle to grave is one of the few hospital based violence prevention programs of its kind in the country. Why is it one of the few? Why isn't it the apex program that has been able to spawn dozens and hundreds of similar programs in metropolitan centers around the United States? Why is it still one of the few? Well, I think that I think hospitals are, for want of a better word, afraid, you know, maybe that's the word to use or or cautious about showing the pictures, about showing, keeping it real, showing what gun violence is really all about. But when you look at the successes that you've had. You, it, it does, it's not hard to see the impact that you're having. You both are very transparent about it. There's articles written about it. It's sponsored by major organizations. It continues to grow. I, I struggle to reconcile why there isn't a similar program in Los Angeles and in Houston and in Chicago and any, anywhere that may need this, any metropolitan center with a level one trauma center or or not. 
any area that is subjected to gun violence, that that's just, and it's, I'm asking it sort of rhetorically. I don't have a good answer and I don't necessarily expect you to have an answer. When we have these discussions, we get to sort of vent a little bit. It's really frustrating. But I, but I think to be honest, Mark, I think it really kind of points to one of the challenges that we have in institutions nationally. And that is, you know, we, we fund large institutions to do research and to do this work, you know, to do these studies. But one of the challenges that they have when it comes to any kind of study or any kind of intervention is connecting to the community. And, and whether you're in L.A. or you're in New York or you're in Philly or Cleveland, you know, that is a real divide. That's a real challenge. So trying to bridge that gap between what your intervention is and the community to which you want to administer it is one of the struggles that people have all throughout the country. One of the things that I think set Temple aside is the, and, and this really is owing to, to Amy and her vision, is the fact that she recognized that we have to hire somebody um, who can make that linkage, whose role is being connected to this community. And that's where the real struggle is. And so that's my full-time job is I have the luxury um, of running these programs, running these interventions, not just cradle to grave. We give out gun locks. We've given out 7,000 gun locks in the last few years. I do a program that teaches gunshot first aid in the communities that are hardest hit um, by gun violence. Um, We do a program that connects uh, victims of crime to crime victim services. These are all things that are kind of under you know, Amy's, the the vision that Amy has had for years, but it required having somebody whose sole job was to make those linkages. Um, And I think that when hospitals or other institutions think about the intervention first and then think about the personnel second, I think that that's why they have a hard time uh, instituting these these programs. And we do want to study the effectiveness of the program. So initially when we started Cradle to Grave, uh, we did study it, we, we presented our work and published our work and, and showed that the program um, did uh, change attitudes towards guns and violence, uh, particularly uh, when we used a questionnaire that had four different subscales. It was the changing or decreasing the attitudes on aggressive response to shame. Now, ultimately, we want to not just affect attitudes, we really want to affect behaviors. And we have tried uh, over the years to really try to get our program into the Philadelphia public schools, uh, where we could then really look at matching the attitude changes with behavior changes. Are the the kids that are in the program, are they getting, you know, better grade point averages? Do they, are they less tardy? Do they have less violent outbursts? Are they in detention less? I mean, that would be something that we would love to do where we could match the attitude change to the behavioral change and then follow the students that have had the programs throughout their time in high school. You know, I think uh, I, I think that would be tremendous. And if we could do a study like that, then I think you would see that other hospitals all across the country would embrace the program and would try to implement something like Cradle to Grave in their own hospitals. The two of you clearly have very clear and specific visions. And Amy, what you were just describing sounds like important longitudinal work. So I'm curious Given the drive that you both have to make this successful and to have a positive impact, what barriers are you experiencing that are keeping you from being able to execute on the vision that you just described? 
Well, I think we did have some barriers in getting into the Philadelphia public schools a number of years back. And we tried from both levels. We first initially had worked with the superintendent's office. We thought we got our foot in the door. They sent their climate control people to come and be part of the program and we were to come and observe the program. And we thought then that we'd be able to get into the schools and be able to do our program. And then that kind of fizzled with the change in superintendent. We then tried going into the schools directly. Okay, we'll go to a school, we'll work with the principal and the teachers in that school, and we'll we'll bring the program to them, uh, and we'll study it that way and try to find some uh, longitudinal data there. And, and again, you know, the, the teachers are under such pressure that it was very difficult for them to find the time to be able to put their students through the program. So we've we've really struggled in getting into the schools. You know, we now have a, a new superintendent that's been pretty successful uh, for the past few years. So maybe we try again for sure. You can tell that we are not people that give up on on things that we know are really necessary and can have an impact for our community. No, that is that is very clear. Scott, one of the things that the way that I actually connected with you in the first place was I remember probably maybe a year ago, I saw on Twitter where you are a, a, just a true artist, a post about giving out gun locks. And I am comfortable telling you that was the first time I heard about gun locks. I, I'm not a gun owner, so I'm okay. not particularly facile with all of the components around gun safety. And I never had curriculum on it in medical school. I've been doing a lot of sort of self-teaching and that was yep. really important to me. That's when I, so I clicked follow and now I have seen you many, many times discuss the importance of going out into communities and handing out gun locks. What is the, what does that process look and feel like for you? So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the genesis of it was interesting, interestingly came from social media. And, you know, I was following an individual named David uh, Waldman, who I think Kagro X is his handle on Twitter, but he's somebody who is often uh, posting about gun fail. You know, gun fail is his hashtag and talking about families who had failed to secure their firearms. And as a result, had a child who had unintentionally shot and wounded or killed himself or another uh, person in the family. And that, you know, just was mind boggling to me that there was such an easy answer to this. And, you know, as I was seeing these tweets of his and these posts of his, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, gunshot survivors and, and I meet virtually every shooting victim who gets admitted to Temple. And I would see them with their children and realize, like, hey, well, here's an opportunity to talk to them about the, the importance of safe storage. But, but what I realized is that one of the main uh, ways for uh, anybody in the country to get a free gun lock is through police departments. And when we're talking about a lot of our patients who've been injured, many of them are prohibited individuals. They're, they're not able to legally own firearms. That doesn't mean that they don't. It just means that they're not legally uh, able to, and they have children. And so what I wanted to do is to take down that barrier for them to protect those children. And what I would ask is, you know, are, would you be willing to take a, a gun lock if I, if I gave you one? And they were absolutely interested uh, in taking a gun lock. And that was really how it all began. And then, you know, I ended up having uh, a lot of gun locks and 
would use social media to kind of promote it. And I was getting phone calls and people direct messaging me saying, hey, can I come get a gun lock? And I would literally, quite literally uh, meet them in the uh, hospital driveway and explain to them how to use a gun lock. And then from there, it just became me going into communities uh, as part of our uh, safe bet program. We created an entire program around it and we would go out to community events or anywhere that there were going to be folks in neighborhoods where there were violence, where there were clearly guns, where there were clearly children, and spend the afternoon explaining why it's important to lock up guns, why, you know, in this country when we have, you know, eight children a day being wounded by unintentional gunfire, how all of this is preventable. And what you found is that the folks who live in these disadvantaged communities who are uh, exposed to so, so much gun violence do want to protect their children. And so that became a real clear example of how you see this problem. And the solution is incredibly simple. You just have to have the, the willingness to do that. And again, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is to work for an institution that not just allows me to do this and to think outside the box, but encourages and promotes this, this work. So I, I can't say enough about the fact that um, it's really this institution's commitment to this community and the surrounding communities that enables me to do this kind of work. I like the way you framed it where it's simple solutions, but executing on them requires a level of resolution. And I'm paraphrasing you, but that's what I took away from what you just said. Amy, in doing that, in demonstrating that level of resolution over and over and over again amidst extraordinarily stressful and sad and difficult circumstances, let's talk a little bit about sustainability because the two of you have a lot more work to do and hopefully it continues to grow and branch out. How, how, where does the sustainability piece fit in for you? I guess uh, I guess a couple points. One, we know that there is more work to be done, and we know when we started on this journey and this path what we wanted to accomplish, and we're not there yet. And then two, you know, unfortunately, we're reminded every day uh, that we're needed. You know, the the numbers of shootings in Philadelphia this past year has just so skyrocketed that. You know, it, it makes our resolve that much more. And, you know, I'm lucky to have Scott. So if I'm feeling particularly uh, down or tired or temporarily discouraged, only temporarily discouraged, Scott's going to be there to help me and to to pick me back up. It's an incredible collaboration that the two of you had. Scott, for you, is it the same? Is it the same process by which you keep this sustainable and, and are able to keep doing this work, or are there other levers that you pull in parallel? You know, it's it's interesting because one of the things that's great is that there's no backsliding with with Amy. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's the truth. So I think that's a compliment, but I can't be sure. <laughs> no, I like it absolutely. There, there, there really isn't. Um, so. You know, I'm always held. She's never satisfied. And that's, yeah, no, it's fine. I can say that now. I'm saying it right here. <laughs> hey, that, that's, that's going on the show for sure. It's, it's, don't cut this. No. <laughs> but she's, uh, she's, she's, she's never satisfied. And by that, I mean, she doesn't rest on her laurels. You know, here's somebody who continues to take call and, and put herself through the, the grueling pace that she does. And so 
you realize that you you got it. You have to step it up. And if you're not doing it on your own, she'll she'll definitely make sure you're doing it. And but but it allows me to also be creative and to think outside the box and to to think about the ways that we can constantly better serve our patients. And I, and and I don't mean to continue to explain our work in story, but it, I think it really captures what we do. When I first talked to Amy about cradle to grave, I had this idea about bringing my whole idea and our whole idea, I think, was bringing kids as close to this experience as possible so that they can experience it vicariously rather than them experiencing it firsthand. And I remember um, coming in here and I played an audio clip of some of the families and uh, the families talking about the kids that had had died and we're sitting in the homes. I and some other uh, kids are sitting in the homes of kids who've been murdered and we're recording their families talking to us about who these kids were in life, not just what they represented in death. Um, and I was proposing to Amy that we would play this for the kids, but I wanted her to hear these first. And we were sitting in her office and I'm playing these recordings and she, she told me to stop and, and I could see how upset she had gotten. And it was because she had had so many bad cases and she had forced herself to kind of keep going so that she could keep doing this, so she could keep serving families. Um, and in, here it was kind of ca- all catching up to her. But for her, it was always rooted in the families um, and the human experience. And so in terms of the work and in terms of you know sustainability, as long as we're continuing to think about the ways that we can best serve our families – um, we're never going to run out of ideas. You know, this this last year has been a real game changer for us. So after all these years, you know, it's been 15, 14 years that Amy and I have known each other. We're finally now getting the kind of financial support to help these families even more than we have before. So we're, we're now doing a lot of work with uh, victim services because one of the things that we would often do is, is discharge patients. And realized that the toll that being in the hospital took was something from which it was going to be very difficult to climb out of. Um, and so we're doing this work with victim services. We created a collaborative with all the victim service agencies that are in the community that we serve um, so that they're coming to the bedside and they're uh, meeting with our patients so that before our patients ever get discharged and go home, they have somebody who's working as an advocate on their behalf that they'll continue to be linked to once they uh, leave the hospital that will go with them to court, that will help them get uh, compensated for lost wages, that can help them with housing, that can, you know, in some cases, you know, when there's a multiple shooting uh, and another family member dies, they can help with burial costs. I mean, there are all these resources that have always been available or have been available for several years to our victims or to our patients, but they just didn't know and they weren't taking advantage of it. So we're making that linkage right at the bedside. And to support that, we created a team now, and this is for the first time we've ever had this, so that 24-7 there is a support person on the trauma team whose sole responsibility is to Uh, support this family, to sit with them, to relay information to them, to help them navigate the hallways of the hospital. When they hear the worst information, this this support personnel uh, stays behind and holds their hands and hugs them and gives them tissue and provides real genuine compassion. 
And that is their primary responsibility. And so, you know, this is something that we just got to this year. And it's a lo- an idea that's long overdue. But we're continuing to think about how we can best serve uh, these patients and their families. And, you know, there's no shortage of, of needs. And, and we're going to be in this business for a very long time to come. It's amazing to hear how the program continues to grow and develop. And I think that's a reflection of all the things that we've been talking about, the, the commitment that you both have, the way you collaborate, the way you're able to support each other. I think that, as you mentioned before, Amy, people reach out to you through all sorts of different mechanisms to try to learn more about this. Where do you send them? What resources do you like to refer people to when you get an email or a phone call or somebody who recognizes you from being on television asks you about this stuff? We have a a website called templesafetynet.org. And what it does is it really talks about the 360 degree nature of the programs that we have, whether it's cradle to grave, violence prevention, turning point with our victim service grant, where it's an intervention during the hospital and at discharge to help provide the services, Gun locks, passing out gun locks are uh, our safe bet program. And then Fighting Chance, which is the program that Scott had talked about where uh, he goes out with our emergency room nursing staff to really educate the community about what they would need to do in the event that there was a shooting in their neighborhood. So it's it's uh, it's templesafetynet.org. Again, it talks about our 360-degree approach to the to firearm injury and gun violence. It's a really special vision that the two of you have. This program is incredibly inspiring and it is an amazing resource and getting to have you both on to hear firsthand how this all came to be and the work that you're doing is, is just an amazing opportunity. Your transparency is wonderful and your focus and your clarity around that focus is just fantastic. So thank you both so much for coming on Amy and Scott. This was really, really tremendous. Thank you, Mark. We really appreciate being on your program. Thanks, Mark. We're so honored. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.